Good morning, Sun Valley. So good to see you here on this day. I'm sure all of you know this, but once every four years, the world's largest sporting event takes place. Um, next year, the World Cup soccer tournament will be played in Qatar. I'm sure all of you have that on your calendars or are excited about it. Um, so I, I'm pretty sure I'm preaching to the choir here, but, um, and you probably know this too, the Brazilian national soccer team is like far and away, uh, at least historically, the best soccer team on the planet, right? Uh, their success on the World Cup stage is unparalleled. Uh, they've won, out of the 21 soccer, uh, World Cup soccer tournaments that have taken place, they've won five of them. And uh, they have never missed the tournament because you have to qualify the tournament. They're the only nation that has never missed the World Cup soccer tournament. So they're, they're the, the big dogs, no doubt, no question. Um, my older brother, who lives in Texas, is more of a soccer enthusiast than I am. Uh, he's a high-level soccer coach and um, just lives and breathes the game. And uh, it's, it's uh, fun to talk to him about these things. But uh, in his pursuit of high-level certification, high-level licensing for coaching, uh, <clears throat> he got to the highest level in the United States and he wanted to get further, so he actually flew to Brazil to spend two weeks with the Brazilian National Soccer Federation and the Brazilian National Soccer Team to get licensed by them to have the highest license in the world for coaching soccer. So he went, assuming that he would uh, get into the top secret information on how the Brazilians are so consistently good at the game of soccer. To his utter amazement, when he was able to actually be there and watch on the pitch with the Brazilian national soccer team training session, he saw them doing simple things that you would see at a U6 soccer game or soccer practice, dribbling through cones, passing back and forth 15 feet apart, running around discs and passing it to one another. And he's going, when am I going to get to the good stuff? And the coach of the national team says, this is the good stuff. <laughs> they, were, they focused on the fundamentals. They are the best in the world at the fundamentals. They don't neglect the fundamentals. And this is, this is not just a lesson for soccer coaching. Uh, it's, it's a lesson for any team, any organization, any individual that wants to be successful at a particular mission. The mission of the Brazilian national soccer team was to win the World Cup. And they knew in order to get to that, achieve that mission, they had to focus on the fundamentals. They had to maintain an emphasis on those things. And so this morning, I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, and I'm going to read for you verses 35 through 39. And I want you to see what I think Mark is communicating to us here about these things. Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. 
And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. So our text today is about how Jesus' commitment to spiritual fundamentals kept him laser focused on God's mission. Jesus' commitment to the spiritual fundamentals kept him laser focused on God's mission. If you want to be an effective disciple, if you want to successfully run a strong race, you're going to need to have the same commitment that Jesus had. You're going to have to follow in his footsteps. You'll have to be committed to spiritual fundamentals. Since we're being conformed to the image of Jesus, as the Bible tells us, I think we would do well to pay close attention to Mark's record here of Jesus' secret to spiritual growth and spiritual effectiveness. So first point, Jesus was laser-focused on the heavenly mission. Jesus was laser-focused on the heavenly mission. You remember what happened just before this early morning prayer, right? You remember what we talked about last week, the, the healing of the many that were sick in Capernaum, uh, the healing of, of Peter's mother-in-law, and that event that went late into the night. This is the very next morning. Jesus is up, out of the house before it's light, finding a desolate place, a, a private place, so that he could pray. A lot of activity had taken place just a few hours before this. Jesus was no doubt exhausted. And then when his four disciples, which what we read about in verses 16 through 20, these four guys, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they woke up, they couldn't find Jesus. He was already out, already gone. Um, Luke's gospel says that not only did these four disciples search for him, but the crowd from the night before was searching all throughout Capernaum looking for Jesus. And from reading these kinds of accounts in the Gospels, you might get the impression that Jesus had won the crowds over. Jesus had accomplished his goal to get great, great crowds, to have a lot of enthusiasm, to have a successful ministry, quote unquote. But we discover from reading these that that wasn't in fact Jesus's goal. That wasn't why he was preaching and throwing out demons and making miracles. We discovered that these folks who were pursuing him weren't really true believers. They wanted to be near to Jesus to, to witness more miracles, to be entertained, to eat more free food, literally. They had a very shallow interest in Jesus. Verse 37, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Look, these are the disciples. These are the four guys who found him. What this means, what these disciples meant was, what are you doing here by yourself when you should be keeping the momentum going with the crowds who are clamoring for you? <laughs> Get out there. They're, they're, they're calling your name. Curtain call. Come on. Is kind of what they were saying. After making such a big splash in Capernaum the night before, his disciples mistakenly thought that Jesus' goal was to do just that, make a big splash. And we learn, as they did, 
that wasn't his goal. He had much greater things in mind. He had a heavenly mission in view. First, under this first point here, is Jesus knew his mission. He knew his mission. Jesus knew who he was and why he was here. He wasn't confused about that. He was here to seek and save the lost. That's what he said in Luke 19. He was here to die as a ransom for many, is what Jesus said in Mark 10. He was here to destroy the works of Satan, is what Apostle John said in 1 John 3.8. Jesus said in John 6.37 that he was gathered here to gather God's elect. He knew why he was here. Jesus could have had a very large and growing ministry in Galilee. But he knew that his purpose in coming to earth was not to draw a crowd, but to save that crowd from their sins, to rescue them from eternal judgment. And so his acts of healing, casting out demons, preaching powerfully, were intended to reveal the kingdom of God and the nature of that kingdom and and to elicit a decision from those listening to him. Will you believe in me, the Lamb of God? Will you put your trust in me, the Savior of the world? Will you follow me, the Good Shepherd? He was calling for a decision. He wasn't trying to create a crowd. The crowd had made their decision, but it was not the decision to embrace Jesus as God. Their decision involved no repentance, no faith, only a selfish and superficial interest in Jesus. For what they could get out of it in the moment is what they were after. But Jesus knew that he had more people to reach, more people to preach to. His goal in ministry was to confront people with the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that is that we must recognize our sin, that God is holy, and that we need a Savior. Have you recognized that? Have you heard that from Christ, Christian or non-Christian? This is Jesus' goal. Jesus said here in the end of verse 38, that's the reason I came out. This is why I'm here. That particular statement refers not only to coming out of Capernaum for the early morning prayer, but out of heaven for the purpose of God's kingdom. This is why I came out, was to preach the gospel, to expose people to God's salvation. So his goal was not big crowds, but preaching the kingdom of God and its gospel. He knew his mission. Secondly, he rejected all distractions. He rejected all distractions. Jesus' answer to Simon no doubt surprised them. To turn away from the crowds who want more and more doesn't seem like a, a good decision for someone trying to establish a ministry or establish a following right? Seems like the wrong decision to leave. I'm sure that the conversation took place. I can just hear Peter saying, what? Leave now? We literally have them eating out of our hands. Let's go back to town, do a few more miracles, and then take another offering, right? That seems like the rational thing to do. I want you to see a small piece of Mark's puzzle here that isn't lying on the surface. I found this very interesting. Simon Peter is the one named here. Did you notice that, right? Um, And he's here in this moment, as in other places, interrupting the mission of Jesus. Not supporting, 
but interrupting the mission of Jesus. Peter was convinced that Jesus' ultimate influence would be an earthly influence in some way. We get the idea from verse 36 here that Simon Peter was hunting for Jesus to bring him back to a place of notoriety. Peter wanted the earthly kingdom now, and he wanted to be in on it. We see something very similar in Mark 8, probably more familiar to you, where Jesus announced his impending death in Jerusalem, and Peter, remember, pulled him aside and was trying to talk Jesus down from the ledge, saying, what, what are you talking about? No. That's not happening. Well, we're on the rise here. We're not, no one's dying. And then what did Jesus do? What did Jesus say to Peter? He says, you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. Get behind me, Satan. He wasn't going to be distracted from what God had called him to do, his mission. In verse 37, if you look there, when Peter said, everyone is looking for you, Mark was using a word, the word looking in your copy. Uh, ten times he used that word in his gospel. And each time that word carries a negative connotation. Each time the word is used, it's used for people who were trying to interrupt God's plan through distraction, through unbelief, or literally through trying to kill Jesus. Every time that word is used in the book of Mark. So looking for or seeking connotes an attempt to control rather than to submit to and follow Jesus. Instead of obeying him and, and falling in line with his purposes, when you read in the book of Mark, someone was looking for Jesus, it was usually trying to control Jesus. Jesus was making disciples, and true disciples are those who don't try to control or manipulate God's plan in their lives, but they follow God's plan. They follow the person of Jesus Christ. I think that's what Mark is trying to communicate here. Mark wants us, his readers, to see that looking for Jesus isn't necessarily a virtue, nor are the clamoring crowds a successful sign of ministry. Being enthusiastic isn't a sure sign of faith. The question we must ask ourselves as we look at this text, why am I looking for Jesus? What's behind my motive for pursuing Christ? Is it for my own comfort, my own personal pleasures, my own social advancement? When you pray, what makes up the contents of your prayers? Is it about your comfort? About your pro progress in your vocation? What makes up the majority of the content of your prayers? That will tell you why you're looking for Jesus. What your pursuit of Jesus is all about. Is it for entertainment as the crowds in Jesus' day? Is it for free food or something in that category as those in Jesus' day? Why are you pursuing Jesus? So he can do something for your comfort? Friends, Jesus knew his mission Jesus rejected distractions, and thirdly, we see in this text, in verses 38 and 39, that he continued his work. He continued his work. He continued to go from town to town, preaching the gospel at every stop, declaring the kingdom of God, and that it had come at every stop. 
in Luke, we read in 4, Luke 4.43 that Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. This is why I came. So making applications to this first point here that we see in these verses is an easy thing, isn't it? Let me, let me unpack it real, real quickly for you. First, Christian, do you know your mission? As Christ knew his, do you know yours? See, Jesus gave us our mission. It's, it's not confusing. We don't have to think up our purpose and declare a purpose statement as individuals or as a church. Jesus has already given us our purpose, our mission. It's the same as his. You remember in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, Jesus praying to his heavenly father, prayed this, just as you sent me into the world, so I am sending them. His mission is your mission. The mission is clear, it's well-defined, and here it is, go and make disciples and love people along the way. That's it. It's not more complicated than that. Go and make disciples and love people along the way. Secondly, by way of application, Christian, do you reject distractions from that mission? as Jesus did? I think this is one of the most difficult parts of the Christian life, avoiding things that distract us from our mission. We're so easily distracted. We all have spiritual ADD, if not physical ADD. We need to fight anything, even good things, maybe especially good things, from distracting us. It's usually the good things that draws down. Very few of us are going to go out and rob a bank tonight or murder our neighbor. Those would be in the distracting category, right? The things that would distract you and me, us good folks, are good things, right? Family, vocation, service, all these things that we would put in a good category, and they are in a good category, but they are the most capable of distracting us. What's my, what's my recommendation? I think it would be Jesus's. I think it would be Paul's. Use the good things in your life. Every good and perfect gift comes from who? God. So use that good gift for your mission. Use the gift of your family to extend the kingdom of God, to, to, to produce disciples. Are your kids becoming disciples of Jesus? Or do they see a contradiction in what you claim and what we preach and how you live? Use your family, your vocation, your leisure, your hobbies, your money as instead of as a distraction, as a means to promoting Jesus, making much of Jesus in his kingdom. Third point of application here from this first section. Christian, are you continuing the work to which you've been called? In spite of all the difficulties, in spite of all the the potential distractions, are you continuing the work as Jesus continued the work to which he was called? Are you continuing that work? 
You've been called to be a light. You've been called to be a disciple. You've been called to make much of Jesus. You've been called to love others, to serve others, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You've been called. Your mission's established. It's clear. Are you continuing the work as Jesus did? Or have you set the work aside to pursue selfish, earthly things? Are you worn out as a disciple, as a Christian? Do you convince yourself that you deserve a break today? You see, the picture that Mark is painting of Jesus is coming into clear focus for us, isn't it? Just in the first chapter. His identity, that is Jesus' identity, his authority are established, it's clear. His mission is communicated to seek and save the lost, to preach the, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now Mark in these verses here also gives us insight into Jesus' personal source of, source of strength, his commitment to spiritual fundamentals. All right? I want you to see this also in these verses. Jesus' spiritual strength came from his commitment to the spiritual fundamentals. All right? Jesus's, the point, second point in your bulletin is Jesus' spiritual disciplines maintained that laser focus on his mission. All right? Because of Jesus' commitment to the fundamentals, he was able to maintain a clear-eyed view of his purpose. Clear focus. All right? The reason that the Brazilian national soccer team can successfully continue to pursue dominance in the world of soccer is because of their clear-eyed view of their purpose. They continue with the fundamentals because they know those things get them here where they want to be. So what are the spiritual fundamentals that Jesus practiced that we see in this text? Well, let me, let me start in a place that's not exactly in this text, just a few verses before, in verses 20 and 21, if you look back up there. What do we see Jesus doing in those two verses in 20 and 21? Teaching powerfully, right? What was he teaching so powerfully? Agriculture? Business? No. The scriptures, wasn't he? He was teaching the scriptures powerfully. How was he able to teach the scriptures so powerfully? Because he knew them so thoroughly. That's how. He knew them up and down, backwards and forwards, inside and out. He was familiar with the Word of God. He memorized it. Now, <laughs> some of you, of course, might think, well, of course he knew the Scriptures so well. He's God, after all. May I remind you that he lived his earthly life as a human? He had to learn the Scriptures. He had to learn how to read. He had to learn how to think. It says in Luke that he grew in stature and wisdom with favor of God and man. He learned how to think. He learned how to memorize, and he memorized. He memorized the Scriptures. So when he was dialoguing and teaching and, and having debates with the religious authorities of his day, it wasn't God speaking through him, in a sense. Of course, it was the Holy Spirit leading and guiding him like that same Holy Spirit leads and guides you, but it was because he had committed himself to the fundamentals and knew the scriptures personally, 
as a man. Paul, in Colossians 3, says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let God's word just inundate your heart and your life and your mind. Let it dwell in you richly, as it did in Christ. You want to keep a clear view of your mission? The first spiritual fundamental that you must have in place and regularly return to is the scriptures. You must be in the word. Are you? Secondly, now here in our text today, verse 35, we see that he practiced prayer, right? Jesus prayed. Verse 35 clearly teaches that Jesus was committed to praying regularly. Jesus prayed a lot. His disciples knew that Jesus was a praying man early on. Maybe, in fact, these verses that we're reading today may be the record of the time when his disciples first learned this guy's committed to prayer. He's up early, in the dark, over there, in a cave, praying. Why would you be here praying when the crowds want you out there? Well, because the spiritual fundamentalist prayer is, to, is the key to success out there. His disciples learned that on this day. But think about this with me for a second. What would Jesus be praying about? Matthew Henry created a helpful outline for private prayer in his book called A Method of Prayer. Um, it's an excellent book. I would recommend it to you. In fact, we, we use the Matthew Henry outline here in our services and in our small groups and encourage you to use it as well. That's where we get the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. Of that outline of private worship, which ones do you think Jesus didn't do? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. He did all but one, confession. Jesus never confessed anything, why? Because he never sinned. There was never anything to confess. He was always in tune with his Father. Jesus prayed, though, out of necessity. You may think that if there was ever anyone who didn't need to pray, it was Jesus, right? But again, he was fully man with a schedule that would unravel any of us. He had human limitations, limitations of energy, stamina, and resilience. He needed to pray. Why? Because he got tired. He got fatigued. And everything else that goes along with hard work. E. Stanley Jones described prayer as a time exposure to God. A time exposure to God. He used the analogy, that is, Stanley Jones used the analogy of life being like a photographic plate, which when exposed to God, progressively bears the image of that exposure. The longer that aperture is open, focused on God, the more the life behind that aperture is changed into the likeness of Christ. It's a good picture, isn't it? In Jesus' case, though, he was already fully God, wasn't he? That's what we read in Hebrews 1.3. He was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So what was the exposing part of this? Why did he pray? Because it was in the Father's presence where he was refreshed in spirit, mind, and body. That happened in prayer. 
One thing that we may not have a real good handle on as modern day Christians are the physical and mental benefits of regular prayer. Jesus knew all about this. He knew that spirit, mind, and body were inseparable and that if he was to keep up with the regimen of an intense physical schedule, he would need to be refreshed daily in the presence of his Father. It was Jesus who had maintained his razor-sharp focus on the mission of God. In order to do that, he would need clear thinking and a refreshed spirit. So he prayed daily often. Of course, the Gospels record many instances of uh, Jesus's prayer life. You can think of them off the top of your head, probably like at the Transfiguration in Gethsemane, the upper room on the cross, his high priestly, priestly prayer in John 17. All these things are recorded to demonstrate his commitment to prayer, his need for prayer shown to you and me, those who are trying to follow his example. We see from numerous occasions in the Gospels that prayer guided his decisions. Do you remember what he was doing before he called his 12 disciples? He prayed the entire night, the night before. And then he came down the mountain and chose the 12. We should learn something from that. (laughs) Before he went to the cross joyfully, what was he doing in Gethsemane? Resting? No, praying. Praying that that God would give him a joyful spirit going into that unbelievable trial of the cross. Prayer refreshed his spirit, guided his decisions. Here, after taxing ministry, we see him praying. After feeding of the 5,000, what did he do? He went up, he stayed up on the hill, sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee, and he stayed and prayed. He stayed in the presence of his father being reminded of his mission, reminded of his father's love, his father's goals, his father's passion, his father's compassion. Jesus needed to pray. The third spiritual discipline or spiritual fundamental that we see in this passage is modeling. Saying, wait a minute, is modeling a spiritual fundamental? Yes, we're commanded to be models. It's a spiritual fundamental. It's how young disciples are born and grow. By us who have walked with Christ, modeling the things of the gospel before their very eyes. And for those of you who have children in the home, pay close attention to what we see in Jesus here. Jesus knew that people were watching him. Do you know that? People are watching you, little eyes that live with you, even people at work who pretend they don't like you, they watch, they know, they know your attitude about almost everything. Jesus was well aware that he was modeling, which is why he told his disciples in Matthew 6, pray like this. This is how you pray. And then he gave him a model prayer that Pastor Rick has been teaching us when he preaches. And here, rising very early in the morning, he went out and he prayed not only to be spiritually refreshed and refocused on his mission, but to model for his disciples who were watching him closely. He modeled the spiritual disciplines. And as the good shepherd, Jesus expects his sheep to follow him, right? In fact, Jesus said they would follow him in John 3. It says this, 
um, Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Modeling. Luke 6:40. A disciple is not above his teacher, Jesus said, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Modeling. Romans 8:29. For those whom he foreknew, Paul said, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The way you become like Jesus is spending time with Jesus. It says in the Gospels that Jesus went into a desolate place and rubbed hard against his disciples. He got into their lives. He rubbed elbows with them. They saw him in every situation and he wanted them to. So the question is, Christian, are you following Jesus' example in the spiritual disciplines? Spurgeon said this, to pray is to enter the treasure house of God and to gather riches out of an inexhaustible storehouse. Prayer is that slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure and the intensity of your prayer life." End quote. See, Jesus' example not only showed us what the content of our prayers ought to be, Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, but also some practical tips on how to pray. That we see that here, the practical tips in verse 35. What are some things that we see here in verse 35 concerning just a practical application of a prayer life? What was going on back at the house where he was staying? He was crazy busy, right? So what did he do? He left. He left that busy place, that distracting place, so he could pray in solitude. There's a practical tip for you. You need to get alone. You need to get away. If you're parents with young kids, that's more of a challenge, but you can do it. Figure it out, get it done. Get alone, get away from the busyness. He got up early before everyone else and departed. He found a spot where nothing could distract him. We need to find places like that. In my experience, I can be my own worst enemy in my prayer life. I don't know about you, but it seems like the minute I bow my head to pray, a hundred different things come into my mind that I need to do that day. Oh yeah, I gotta pay this bill. Oh yeah, I gotta go there. Oh yeah, I gotta do that. So what I learned personally when I was developing my, my habits, my disciplines, is I kept a pad of paper next to me and I wrote down those things that would try to distract me from my prayer time. I wrote them down. So my mind or Satan or whoever's behind it couldn't convince me that I need to think about that a little bit longer. Write it down, go back to prayer. Something else came up, write it down, go back to prayer. Don't be distracted, spend time in prayer. My mind would drift to other things that I needed to do that day, so I just wrote them down. Um, we have to do that kind of thing to pray well, to practice the disciplines well. A.W. Tozer said the key to praying is simply praying. I like that. And you thought there was a great big secret. No. The secret to praying is 
praying. Have everyday things. Here's another thing, another practical tip. Have everyday things be prayer reminders for you. When you drive past a school, what comes to mind? The children in that school? Maybe, if so, pray for the kids in this church. The teachers at that school? If so, pray for the teachers in this church. When you drive past a hospital, what do you think of? I'm glad I'm not there. No. (laughs) Think of those who are there. Pray for those in this church who are sick, who may be in the hospital. Pray for the sick. Pray for those who work with the sick. Pray for the doctors and the nurses in our church. Use everyday things to remind you to pray about things. Write things on a postcard and put it on your mirror at home. Write it on a postcard and, and scotch tape it to your dashboard in your car. Be committed to the fundamentals. Read your Bible. Get a a Bible reading app that will read the Bible to you when you're driving to work or driving home from work or driving someplace else to your fishing trip. Listen to the scriptures. Listen to the scriptures preached, read, etc. Get the scriptures into your mind and heart. So, friends, do you struggle to keep the main thing the main thing in your Christian life? Is the main thing the main thing in the Christian life? Have you committed yourself to Christ and his mission? Or are you still running the show? Are we still following your agenda? Is the main thing the main thing? Or has it slipped to second, third, or fourth place? And that's common even for Christians. Prioritizing Jesus means prioritizing his mission, doesn't it? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus said in John 14. Now, I don't want you to hear me today giving you a list of things to check off. Got to read my Bible, got to pray, got to... You know, I, I don't want that. What, here's what I want. I want what Mark wants. I want what the Holy Spirit wants. Here's Jesus. Is he worth following? Yeah or no? Do you want to make much of Jesus? Do you want to be like Jesus? Keep an eye on him. Follow him. Make much of him. All these things will fall into place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do want to make much of you. We, We do want our minds saturated with you. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that, that you would bring Christ to the forefront of our thinking. That the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. Holy Spirit, draw our minds to the person and work of our Savior, Jesus. Fill our hearts and minds and lives with Christ Jesus. Thank you for this simple passage where Jesus simply went out and prayed. Help us follow his example. Help us follow him. It's in his name we pray, amen.